So today's topic is going to be God's favorite doctrine. And God's favorite doctrine is the sovereignty of God. And as one of my favorite Bible teachers used to say, if you were God, your favorite doctrine would be the sovereignty of God also. When we're talking about the sovereignty of God, we're talking about the godness of God. We're talking about the fact that He's not a Lord. He is the Lord of lords. He's not a king. He's the king of kings. We're talking about his supremacy. We're talking about his freedom to do whatever he wants to do because he's God. To be a little bit more crass and lowbrow about it, it appears as if God has a God complex. Because after all, he's God. All-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise, knowing the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning, God does what God wants to do, and by definition, whatever He does is good and right because He's God. And so when we're talking about the sovereignty of God, that's what we mean. The sovereignty of God is important. Today we heard it in Psalm 83 at the end in our scripture reading. The Lord, the Most High over all the earth. So he's not like all of the other lesser kings. He's not like any of the other lesser gods. He's not like any of the lesser sovereigns. He is the Most High over all the earth. God's sovereignty is important because it is who God is. It's important because it means there's none greater. There's no one greater for you to adore or worship. His sovereignty is important because he's sovereignly for his people. He's also sovereignly against his enemies and his, therefore his people's enemies. He is comfortingly sovereign. He's unsettlingly sovereign. He is shockingly sovereign. He's wonderfully sovereign. First Timothy chapter six, verse 15 says he's the only sovereign because he and he alone is God. Our confession says he hath most sovereign dominion over all creatures to do by them, for them, or upon them whatsoever he himself pleases. Our text to learn about the sovereignty of God today is the book of Exodus. So if you have a Bible, you can find the second book of the Bible. The Exodus is about a lot of things, but certainly it displays God's sovereignty, that he's in charge. So the book of Exodus is about exiting. Pretty profound, right? It's about leaving, but it's about the people of God being oppressed under a tyrant, about the people of God being enslaved and treated unjustly, and God redeems them. God sets them free so that they can exit Egypt, thus the exodus, and so they can head to the promised land. And so it's all about that. But they're being oppressed and enslaved by a, get this, a sovereign. They are being oppressed and, and, and enslaved, maybe a slave too if we want to make up words, to make it really bad. By Pharaoh the king, Pharaoh the powerful one, Pharaoh, like I said, the sovereign. And so we have the showdown of sovereigns, if you will. And what we see is God and God alone is the ultimate sovereign. So the book of Exodus is exciting in that sense. It's also exciting and important because the New Testament assumes that you know the book of Exodus. 
It assumes that you're familiar with the deliverance. You're familiar with the oppression. You're familiar with the enslavement. Because what we're going to see, not today, Lord willing, next time, is the Passover. And the New Testament assumes you know a lot about the Passover. Because Jesus is called the Passover Lamb. He's the one who sets his people free ultimately. The ultimate oppressor is death. It's not Pharaoh. The ultimate oppressor, the ultimate tyrant, the ultimate enslaving master, if you will, is death, the New Testament would have us to know. And God sovereignly, because he's sovereign over all lesser sovereigns, is sovereign over death. And through the Lord Jesus Christ, the Passover lamb will secure salvation. Exodus, if you will, right? Being set free from sin and its penalty, he secures ultimate exodus for his people. So that's one of the reasons why we're studying the book of Exodus. I read in one of my favorite commentaries a couple of weeks ago, it said, this portion of Exodus is very hard to teach. And I thought, thank you very much. Um, not very encouraging. Because there are lots of verses, right? There's a lot to cover. But I think it's worth it because it'll make us better Christians if we understand the historical Exodus. So we're in the section right now between chapter 5 and chapter 10. And that would be dealing with the plagues. Okay, the showdown between the sovereigns, if you will. And that's leading us to where we'll be again, Lord willing, next time when we get to chapters 11, 12 and 13, it's the Passover, right? Kind of the the part we've been waiting for. But to get us ready for the Passover, we're going to work our way through these plagues. We started last week. I'll review. So if you weren't here, you can be brought up to speed. And then again, we'll see how we do on time. We'll work our way through chapter 10 today. And that's just going to get us ready for Passover, which is what I'm so looking forward to. And so let's go ahead and dive in today. Chapter five, verse one, just by way of review, it says in chapter five of Exodus, afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. And we learned in chapter three, that's the great I am, the one who doesn't have a name like all the other gods. He's just God. He's just the self-existent one. He's not the water God. He's not the, the sun God. He's not the fire God. He's, he's the, the great I am, the one without beginning, the one without end. So you can't really attach a name to him in that sense because you'd be too limiting. He's just the, the, the I am God. And so they're coming to Pharaoh and saying, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel... Let my people go. Let them exit. Let the exodus happen. Let them be free that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? That I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. I'm sovereign around here. I'm the king. Don't you see my kingdom? Don't you see what happens when I flex? That's what's happening here. So note the contrast. He's the great oppressor, but he's in charge. Chapter 6, verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, I will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his hand, out of his land. Excuse me. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Doesn't happen when they want it to happen, which is how sovereignty works sometimes. But it's going to happen. 
Then if we go to chapter 6, verse 7, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. See, sovereignty for his people is a great and glorious thing. I can't, it, it blows my mind. Why, I understand why unbelievers don't like the sovereignty of God. I understand why believers love the reality of the sovereignty of God. It still baffles me when professing Christians don't like the sovereignty of God. I realize it means he can't be be domesticated. I realize it means he's probably freer than you thought he was. That he's a lot less like you than you thought he was. But it's a great and glorious reality that, that, that I'm I'm your I'm your God. We 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 should love the sovereignty of God, even if it's somewhat mysterious to us. The Lord, your God, who has brought you out of under the burden of the Egyptians. I will, how about verse 8 of chapter 6? I will bring you into the land that I swore, right? I covenantally oathed. I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Abrahamic covenant from Genesis. I will give it to you for a possession. How, how do we know this is true? How do we know the promises are going to happen that bring salvation and on, on deliverance and blessing? We know that it's true because of the sovereignty of God. Look, there it is. The end of the verse, the end of verse 8. I am the Lord. It's so important that we know who He is or why would we trust His promises? A lot of people make a lot of promises. But His promises are going to be sure because of who He is. Theology matters, folks. Doctrine of God matters. Chapter 7, verse 3, we're going to see this, this repetition of what happens, this, this showdown between sovereigns, if you will. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. God says he will do that. It keeps coming up again and again. We'll talk more about it later. Verse 13 of chapter 7, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Uh, I mentioned it last time. It has to do maybe a little bit different than we think when we think someone's hard-hearted. They're just calloused-hearted. That might be true of Pharaoh. But it's a word word that's actually used for resolved. So he was up to no good to begin with. And he's all the more committed to be up to no good. And, and, And God helps him to be all the more committed to no good for a greater purpose, as we will see. Verse 13, uh, we saw his heart is hardened, and now we come to the plagues. The first plague is water to blood, just as an ever so quick footnote. I mentioned it last week. When we hear the word plague, at least in 21st century English, we think pestilence, those kinds of things. Um, it's actually a word, the word that's sometimes used uh, in the Bible and also in Jewish tradition. It's a word for, for hitting it's a blow. It's a strike. So it's not necessarily pestilence. And, and it's it's an attack. It's a response. It's a blow again. I'll probably say plagues because it's customary. But what I mean when I say plagues would be blows. Here goes another hit. Here goes another strike. The first one, water to blood. And then what happens in verse 14 of chapter 7? Pharaoh's heart is hardened. So even though there's supernatural things that he experiences, he sees, he witnesses, he's all the more committed to still be against the people of God as an oppressor. Verse 22 ends with, so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. Then the next plague, the frogs, chapter 8, verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart. So all the more resolved in all of this. Third plague, the gnats, chapter 8, verse 19. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Even though there's supernatural things happening, it doesn't change his heart. Then chapter 8, verse 32. Fourth plague, the flies. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also. And that's where we stopped last time. That was a pretty quick review. Okay, now we're going to keep 
pressing on. And again, where are we going with all this? Conflict between sovereigns. Obviously, God is the ultimate sovereign so that we can have the ultimate awful thing. The ultimate blow will be the Passover event, if you will. But it is what lays the table so that we can understand what the Lord Jesus Christ does in bringing ultimate deliverance to his people. This is a picture to help us to see that. New Testament assumes you know this stuff. Okay, fifth plague, Egyptian livestock die. And that we're going to do a bunch of reading. I don't apologize for reading. It, one of you tried to encourage me last week and said, Pastor, thank you so much for reading the Bible to us. And I just have to be honest. I was encouraged, but it kind of made me twitch a little bit. Like, I want to preach the Bible to you. But you know what? When we're in Exodus and there's 40 chapters, we do a lot of reading. And so you're welcome. I'm happy to read the Bible to you. I want to do more than read the Bible to you, but not less than read the Bible to you. So I think it's worth us doing this uh, and, and seeing what's happening here. Okay, fifth plague, Egyptian livestock die, chapter 9, verse 1, new ground here. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. And you may be noticing there are synonyms used sometimes. Serve me, sacrifice, feast, worship, all are overlapping. Same idea. Then it says in verse 2, For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. It's got to be supernatural. This isn't, this isn't a disease that's, that's going through all of the, the livestock that wouldn't recognize, you know, city limits. It's got to be supernatural. Verse 5 says, And the Lord said a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died. But not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. And he did not let the people go. I may mention this again. I may forget to mention it again. But isn't it interesting that sometimes we think if people could only see something supernatural, then they would come to believe in the one true and living God. Uh, that's a mistake for Christians to think that. It's a mistake for non-Christians to think that. He's witnessing the supernatural and even an escalation, and it doesn't change a hard heart. It's not actually the key to a regenerate heart. Next plague, sixth plague, the boils. Chapter 9, verse 8. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the kiln. And let Moses throw them in the air on the side of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh and Moses threw it in the air and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Sometimes Pharaoh's hardening his own heart. Sometimes the Lord is hardening his heart, is what we're seeing so far. Next plague would be the hail. And verse 13 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, 
Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people. Notice this next part. So that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. As a fan of the sovereignty of God, I like those three words. None like me. This is all happening so that we would know, so that everyone would be able to see, so that there would be a testimony and notice that there would be knowledge. Knowledge can be bad, but knowledge is actually really important. Just because it can be abused doesn't mean it's not essential. So that people will know, so that you will know there is none like me. King of kings, Lord of lords, sovereign, okay? The ultimate sovereign. Verse 15, for by now I could have put my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. So just just so you're aware, we, we could have ended this a long time ago. This is on purpose. This is a display on purpose so that people will know, so that I will be famous throughout history. Then verse 16. The whole thing is worth underlining, emboldening, highlighting. But for this purpose. Oh, that's sovereignty talk. Decree talk. For this purpose, I, the God of Israel, the great I am, Yahweh the sovereign, for this purpose, I, how about this? This, this, this should get you with a puzzled face. I have raised you up. So Pharaoh, I just want you to know, Mr. Mr. Big Shot, powerful, I'm Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The reason you're the king of Egypt is not because of the family line you were born into, ultimately. It's not because of who you've known or what you've accomplished, the battles you've won, ultimately. I want you to know that I, the sovereign God who works according to divine purpose, decree, I raised you up. You're on the throne. Because ultimately, behind the scenes, I put you there. Ooh, kind of interesting. If that's true, that's a big deal. To show you my power. I put you in this place of power to show you my power. So that my name, not yours, my name may be proclaimed in all the earth, not just in Egypt. There is a God who's different from all the other gods. He's the great I am. He's the one who swears, who covenants faithful, good promises of salvation and deliverance to his people. My, my, my prayer is that you would love the sovereignty of God. And, and if need be, that you would hate it first. But you would come to love the reality of who God actually is. But there's more than meets the eye. How is it that Pharaoh became Pharaoh, ruler, sovereign king? It says, I have raised you up for this purpose. The, the, the Apostle Paul brings up this very same text in Romans chapter 9. He brings it up in Romans 9, and I'll, I'll engage with that just a little bit. In Romans chapter 9, he brings up this very text because there's this question about, is God fair? 
And is God unjust by dealing the way he deals with people, doing the things that he does? He doesn't save everybody. He saves some. And the Apostle Paul brings up this very same passage. And again, I realize the sovereignty of God can be unsettling even to Christian minds. Because before you know it, we realize that he's not like us. That he's different. And that he doesn't sit in judgment by us, but of us. It's fascinating. Romans 9.14 says, What shall we say then? Can I just insert, because I've studied the passage before? Not much. <laughs> don't, don't, don't say very much at all. If, if you're, you're putting God on trial. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, no. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Verse 17 of Romans 9 says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So I want you to be powerful. I want you to, to think you're all that and for everybody else to think that so that you can, so that everyone can see and there can be an, there can be a, an eternal testimony. Not even a comparison. And again, to bring us encouragement, he says, I'll be your God. I love it. Verse 18 of Romans 9 says, So then he has mercy on whomever he wills. And he hardens whomever he wills. He's free. Just a, just a few takeaways from that passage. God is sovereign even over sovereigns. Even the sovereignest of sovereigns. Even when it doesn't look like he's sovereign. If you're one of the enslaved Israelites, we've already seen them grumbling and complaining because it doesn't look like God is sovereign. But he's sovereign even when it doesn't look like he's sovereign. Another thing to think about would be God does whatever he wants. And therefore, he's not obligated to show Pharaoh mercy. That might be a rub for you. I hope it is until it isn't. Another thing to think about is, and this is important, Pharaoh, like everyone else, is a sinner opposed to God worthy of condemnation. This is actually important because sometimes people read Romans 9 and they only read Romans 9 and they think somehow Pharaoh was a great guy. I mean, they had pretty cool costumes. <laughs> oh, that eyeliner. <laughs> and somehow God made him bad. Don't read Romans 9 without reading Exodus. He's a bad actor. And God just resolves him in his badness. To do bad things, ultimately, so good things can happen for the people of God, including you in the 21st century, knowing that your sovereign is better than any other sovereign. So God doesn't make Pharaoh a bad person. He is a bad person. But God uses bad people to accomplish good purposes. Okay, we better get back to our text. But isn't it great stuff to think about? I'm, I'm, I, I so, I'm so thankful to just to be able to learn more and more about God. Because he's made these promises and a lot of people make promises to me and they don't keep them. I make promises to a lot of people and I don't keep them. 
and we don't need another empty religion. But wow, if this is the God who delivers and all of this is to help us to see that he's great and to help us to see that there is actually a greater exodus and that there is a greater Passover, I'm thankful for the book of Exodus. Well, we better keep moving. Returning to Exodus 9, it says in verse 17, You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never had been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die. When the hail falls on them, then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, there was no hail. Right? It reads that way. Because it's not a natural occurrence. It's not an act of God in the insurance waiver sense. (laughs) It's an act of God in the sovereign miraculous sense is what it is. And it's meant to stand out there. Oh, if we had time to talk about other things. I've actually talked to people about this text before, and, and there, it's been their, their objection to Christianity has been this text. Because how could God, who's good, destroy things? Well, for starters, how did you come to the conclusion that destroying things is bad? Well, at least the person I was speaking with is a person who doesn't believe in God. So I said, why isn't destroying things virtuous then? Where did you get the idea that destroying things could even possibly be bad? Maybe from a biblical ethic. Isn't this just progress? Destruction? Well, we won't talk about that, but it was an interesting conversation. I think it's a better take. God is sovereign and God does whatever he wants with his earth. Seems like a saner option to me for the ultimate good of his people. Okay, we better move on. Verse 27, then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, this time I've sinned. The Lord is, the Lord is in the right and I and my people are in the wrong. 
plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail. So here's Moses, the mediator. There is a greater Moses, by the way. We'll talk about him in the days ahead, who's a better mediator. So that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in bud, but the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again. And hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go, people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. So more insanity. Sin makes you insane. Insane denying the sovereignty of God, thinking you're sovereign. Miracles are not the solution. And now we come to the eighth plague, the locusts in verse chapter 10, verse 1. I think we might get chapter 10 done. What do you think? think we might. I actually have chapter 11, 12, and 13 in my notes because in a sense, it's the good part. So maybe we could do takeout. All right. We, we probably won't. We're just going to do chapter 10, chapter 10, verse one. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants that I may show these signs of mine among them. And that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson, Your children, in other words. How about this? How I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them. Here we go. Punchline of verse 2. That you may know that I am the Lord. And we saw something similar to that. The things are happening so that you may know that God is sovereignly against his enemies slash his people's enemies. And so let's know that God, even though it might not look like it in the short run, is sovereignly for his children and he's sovereignly against his children's enemies. This is a good thing for you to teach your own heart. It's a good thing for you to know and you want to so know it and have such convictions about it, dear 21st century Christian, that you would teach your kids this. You would teach them about the sovereignty of God. And even though things might look a certain way right now, you know, God is good and he's shown himself to be faithful. And this isn't the first time it didn't look like he's sovereign. But we know that he is. And in time he shows himself to be. So let this be known. Let it be a testimony for family devotions. It's a testimony and it's an assurance. Verse 3 says, So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land and they shall eat what is left to you after the hail and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field and they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and all of the, of all the Egyptians as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day then turned and went out, went out from Pharaoh. Okay. Verse seven. Then 
Pharaoh's servant said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do not, do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? What a testimony that is. Verse 8, So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. And he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, The Lord be with you if ever I let you and your little ones go. Read, read the, the, the tone of sarcasm, of objection. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. That, that's, that's not going to happen, in other words. Verse 11, no. Go, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking. It's actually not. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for locusts, for the locusts, so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a d- dense swarm of locusts as had never been before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Then 16 says, then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord, your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin. Please only this once and plead with the Lord, your God, only to remove this death from me. And we all do the eye roll because we weren't born yesterday, but let's keep reading. Verse 18, so he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. And then we come to the last one we'll look at today, the ninth plague, which is the darkness. Verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. I did enough research into that to conclude that it means a darkness that can be felt. (laughs) You know, you're like, maybe the Hebrew word means something else other than that, that it would be a darkness that you could touch and hold on to, which we know can't be done, but it sure drives home the point. The severity is going to be so severe, it's like you could touch darkness. But he doesn't end there by, by stressing the severity. Verse 22 has some, some interesting wording. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness. Just two words for darkness. It's a good translation by the ESV. It's pitch dark, like we might even say. But it's dark, dark. So that there was dark darkness. There was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. And I want to suggest to you that that just can't happen. We, 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 we just simply can't do that. We can't replicate that. So that just can't happen. 
Unless it's a miracle. How trippy would that be? Let's do some trippy speculation, right? You go, how, how could it be? What if you were, what if you were the Israelites and you could see it? I don't know. It's just weird to think about. All of these things are supernatural occurrences. So you go, that, that's, that's pretty wild. How does that even work? If you're in dark darkness, pitch darkness, and there's just a little tiny light somewhere far off in the distance. It's like it lights up the room. You don't get that sense here. That you may know that I am the Lord, oh, your God. Verse 23 says, they did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. We already covered that, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. So maybe a direct affront to the the sun god of Egypt. I don't know. Verse 24 says, Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your rocks and your herds remain... Excuse me, rocks. Flocks. Let the rocks stay too. Let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice. In other words, worship, serve, feast to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. For we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. Next plague, right? The one we're waiting for, Passover. But I want you to remember and even think ahead of time, it's going to be awful. And I mean that in both senses. Awful is a great word. The Passover event is awful as in terrible to anybody who has a heart. And it is awful as in amazing because of what God does. But it's ultimately awful in a good sense because the Lord Jesus Christ is the ultimate Passover lamb who experiences the judgment the blow, the ultimate one, so that he can bring redemption for his people and bring them life so that they don't have to pay for their own sins. It will be awful in a bad sense and it will be awful in a good sense. But what an amazing reality it is that all of this prefiguring history is laid down for us to paint the canvas better, to help us to understand, and to say, indeed, God is sovereign over sovereigns like Pharaoh, who's an enemy of the people of God. But you know what? Ultimately, he's sovereign over the sovereign master that we hate and know as death, the last enemy. And he has conquered that through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, which is why we have hope. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for these men and women and boys and girls 
we gather because we, we, we want to be reminded. We want to be reminded about your sovereignty and your greatness. And even though we, we, we can't relate to it because we're not sovereign, we are glad to know that you are for your people, not as a weak, inept God who tries, but the God who purposes, the God who decrees. And so we have to say to ourselves, blessed be the name of the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. May the Lord bless you as you go. Have a wonderful day.